0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben.
1: Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 441 of the podcast. It is February 23rd, 2022. Our guest today is John Deuce. You'll learn more about him in a minute. We are going to be talking about lean and education. We're going to be talking about Deming. We're going to be talking about process behavior charts and a whole lot more. So for links and more information, look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 441. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Again, our guest today is John Deuce. He is the chief learning officer of the United Schools Network, or USN, where he directs the network's continuous, continual improvement fellowship, and serves as an improvement advisor. So he draws heavily on the work of W. Edwards Deming. So hence my stumble over continual when I I typically say um, continuous, but uh, we're not here to debate that. Before I tell you more about John, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing well.
0: Uh, Really appreciate you having me, Mark, and looking forward to the conversation.
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot to talk about here today, um, talking about improvement science and applications, not just in education, but I think there's going to be a lot that comes out of uh, the topics today that would be applicable to people in any setting. So whether you're listening as an interested parent or uh, somebody else or just you know somebody who's interested in improvement, we have a lot to talk about today. So under John's leadership, USN Schools, have regularly been among the state and the nation's highest performing urban schools. Uh, This is in Ohio. So in 2013, John was recognized as the Ohio School Leader of the Year by the Ohio Alliance for Public Charter Schools. So um, John graduated with honors from Miami University in uh, Oxford, Ohio. It's my sister's alma mater as well. Um, he holds a Master of Education degree from the University of Cincinnati. Um, I don't know why I'm mentioning all of this. My nephew is currently a student there <laughs> and um, he's an alumnus of Teach for America. And John is continue, currently continuing his education through the Improvement Advisor Program at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Boston, Massachusetts. So. Um, that's an interesting point. We'll come back to later, like learning methods that came from other industries into healthcare, into education. So, um, I'll stop stumbling over different words and phrases here and 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 ask um, ask you, John. You know, can you first off give us a little bit of context about you know a ne- network of charter schools and, and and what that means? Give us the context of the organization that you're in.
0: Sure, we uh, we're. We're a a network of five organizations, but we really think of ourselves as a small school district here in Columbus, Ohio. So we have two middle schools that serve grades six through eight and two elementary schools serving grades K through five. And then I work at our sort of the hub of the network, the home office of the, of the school district that supports the schools. And, you know, really we've grown pretty organically from a single school in 2008 to now a four school network serving about a thousand, thousand students here in Columbus um, and about a 100 and 125 uh, staff members between those five organizations. And, um, you know, we're always looking for ways to better serve, you know, our, our students and families and our staff and, you um, We've taken various approaches to that, you know, over the last dozen years or so. But um, I've really latched on to sort of the improvement science methodology, and then the continual improvement work, especially mm-hmm. the the Deming philosophy, in the last couple of years, and that's that's beginning to have a profound impact on, on the work we're doing here
1: in Columbus. And one thing I want to point listeners to: um, John has published a really good ebook that um, that takes a, a deeper dive um, into this. The title—I know I have it here in my notes somewhere. I'm not having a good day today. The title of the ebook is—it's uh, called "Rethinking Improvement."
0: It's—it's yeah. it's an introduction to applying W. Edwards Deming's system of profound knowledge to school transformation.
1: So, from reading that ebook, I have—I um, I probably overproduced notes because that's why I couldn't find the title. But that's something um, we—that's we, something we can link to in the show notes, right, John?
0: Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great.
1: Yeah. Um and then for for yeah, you know, and I don't know um, a lot about charter schools um for for context, um, I, I'm just curious to learn uh, think of the background of where you draw students from parents making a choice to send their children to a charter school as opposed to their local public school.
0: yeah, um to the 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 policy environment actually just just recently shifted so that charters can exist anywhere in Ohio now. But the vast majority, over the last quarter century since they've been in existence here in in Ohio, have existed in uh, the geographic boundaries of a school district that's struggling. Um, the definition of struggling or academic sort of emergency is the words they've mm-hmm. used for most of that history um, is is uh, has has shifted. But basically. Charter schools in Ohio, by and large, exist in the eight large uh, urban cities. And then there are some exceptions in outlying areas. Um, so the, the vast majority of our students qualify for free and reduced lunch, for example. And that's that's fairly typical of an Ohio mm-hmm. charter school. So, so nearly 100% of our kids qualify. Um, as we you know, work to set up our program and, and think about the students that we're going to serve, um, and then what's you know come to fruition is that the vast majority of our students are also um, you know typically behind academically when they enroll, and so there's a lot of sort of deliberate thought around our program and how we can catch them up, especially by eighth grade, so that we can then send them on to uh, high school where you get a lot less support. And so our basically our whole network, which is K to uh, eight, uh, four schools K to eight. Is set up with that sort of thinking in mind, uh-huh. we're public schools, so we're you know we uh, serve whoever comes to sign up. Uh-huh. Uh, we do a lot of sort of grassroots um, recruitment to to get the word out about the schools, and that includes you know calling families, that includes um, you know open houses, that includes going door to door to let people know uh, in the surrounding neighborhoods that the schools exist. Um, and so, and, you know, now 12 or 13 years in, there's, there's some good word of mouth stuff that happens as well as we get, you know, siblings that come to our system and, and neighbors and that kind of thing. Um, from a funding standpoint, we get federal and state money, um, but we don't get local money, which, you know, varies by district, but, you know, amounts to about 40% that then we're looking to sort of make up through philanthropy and, and grant writing and and things of that nature. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, we also don't really have access to buildings. So we, we struggle on that front too. That's something that we're, you know, always fighting for is where, where are our school is going to be located in addition to the, to the resource constraints of, of, of the funding system. Yeah. Um, and then we, we we basically have had to operate on a very lean sort of budget and staffing model through most of our history. And so I think that's, you know, in some ways that that is unfortunate. In other ways, you know, it really makes you uh, thoughtful about what you do with those resources and, and you know, who's on your team and um, h- how you improve those things mm-hmm. over time. So.
1: so. Yeah. yeah. On a positive side, there's some pressure to improve, to better serve. The, stu- the students, but then also to, to help, I guess, from a competitive standpoint, draw in others. And, you know, you, you use the word system. You can talk about a you know, school system, a network, a district. Um, so that that word system is one, of course, that we talk about a lot in the context of um, Deming and, and Lean and other approaches, trying to be better uh, systems thinkers, which mean, to me means system design. Mm-hmm. and then the continual improvement of said systems. So before you know, taking, you know, I think what will be a real good deep dive into the continual improvement side, what are, are there other elements of the, the design or the structure of the system that's to the advantage of, of students um, in the United Schools Network?
0: That's an interesting question. You know, when I, you know, uh, first sort of came across uh, Deming's work, you know, a lot of it initially was hard for me to understand, but then some of it, you know, right off the bat resonated. And so even though I didn't have the terminology appreciation for a system or something like that, I think Mm -hmm. in some ways that's, that's the way I thought before. And so Mm -hmm. for example, um, very early on, we recognized the importance of writing down, uh, our sort of our processes, our procedures and key areas, be it sort of the operations of the school or classroom and how we do sort of classroom management and how we do curriculum and instruction and assessment. So we had manuals in all these areas, how we onboard and sort of train up our, our people. And so we wrote those things down. Define key terms, and I came to learn sort of operational definitions are sort of a key component of Deming's philosophy. Right. Um, and then we continuously improved those um, every year based on what we had learned. And so while I wasn't using sort of continuum, continuous improvement language, and I didn't know Deming, we were we were doing some some things that were sort of fallen in that camp. And I think that was to the benefit of of students for sure. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but there's certainly a Dr. Deming idea of if you can't write it down, you don't have a system or or processes. And similar idea that comes from Toyota or Lean or other influences around what you might call standardized work. If you can't write it down and define things as a process, it's not really. It's at least it's not a repeatable process, which then we would in most cases suggest would lead to better outcomes. The more better defined uh, that process is even as a baseline for continual improvement.
0: Yeah, no, that's 100%. That standard work is probably the right word for, you know, what's captured in those manuals. And then, you know, what you just said about the sort of paraphrased Deming quote, this idea of, you know, you know, without a aim, there is no system. I think, Mm -hmm, you know, I didn't have that language, but, but, you know, we've always had a strong mission and vision statement and made sure that. People that were considering working here, or volunteering here, or supporting in some other way, they they knew what that vision and mission were, and I think that uh, that's helped us. While we didn't have that aim system terminology, we we were pointing in that direction. That's been super helpful. And now that we've discovered that sort of idea, we've been even more deliberate about okay, what's what's our aim for eighth mm-hmm. grade, or you know, what's our aim for our high school placement program. What's the aim of the organization as a whole? Because that, you know, that changes over time. Mm-hmm. And then making sure now that we have more people, you know, we started as six staff in the basement of a church with 57 students. And now we have 130 staff and a thousand students mm-hmm. and many more supporters. So how do we make sure that everybody is, you know, moving in the same, same direction so that that aim work has become even more important as the, mm-hmm. as the network has grown?
1: Yeah, so it's important, of course. Yeah, starting with um, that aim, and in the ebook, there's a a very Deming-like diagram of a system of inputs and outputs and steps in an education process, and and in that, you know, you you make reference and point to voice of the customer Mm -hmm. as input to what that aim or what the what the objectives of the system would be. Um, I, I imagine this is complicated, maybe even more complicated than healthcare. How do you define customer? for education between students, parents, the communities future employers, future education (laughs) institutions, all of the above. Yes. No.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's all of those things. Um, Certainly sort of uh, families and students are sort of on the front end in terms of input and then sort of on the, on the output side, they're, they're also, they sort, sort of show up in that flow diagram as well. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, for us, cause we're a K to eight system. So I would throw high schools in there, you mm-hmm. know, making sure that we're preparing students for that sort of next, that very next stage in the process, um, higher education, you know, um, you know, even the arts and the military and um, the community as a whole, I think are all sort of customers in different ways, you mm-hmm. know, and, and provide feedback in different ways. Um, but I think they're all important parts of, of the system. And when you sort of step back and look at it that way, um, you know, there's so many, so many areas for improvement beyond, you know, the organizational chart that just sort of shows your staff. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that, that's kind of how I have started to talk about it with folks here is that, you know, when you think of your organization, think of that, that system, that flowchart that you're referring to and not just. The org chart that's, you know, mapping who reports to who and who's accountable to who and that
1: type of thing in in terms of the adults. Yeah. So I'd love to hear your story or, you know, share it with um, the listeners here. Where, Where did you first learn about what we could describe as continuous improvement or continual improvement practices and principles and such? It was even before your exposure to Deming, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, in that book you referenced, um, I kind of thought about my own sort of learning across my career. I'm about, you know, 20 or so years into my, my career as an educator. And I sort of divided up into these four stages or so. Um, you know, early on in my career as a teacher, sort of like, I call it like stage zero, where it was just like trial by fire. You know, I'm kind of going day by day learning how to be a to be a teacher and to run a classroom, and then, you know, as I got into my career, I I I was lucky enough to to be on the startup team of a charter school in Denver, and was exposed to a whole host of resources that I would call sort of like on the technical side, um, so data driven instruction and and teaching techniques that that work in in classrooms. Um, I also got to you know just. You know, through some of those experiences was on the startup teams of about seven organizations between schools and hmm. the nonprofit where I work now. Um, and so I learned a lot on that technical side, but I wasn't really doing anything that I would call sort of continuous improvement by name. And then um, stage three is sort of like I got a random email about this book that came out called Learning to Improve: How America's Schools Can Get Better at Getting Better written by a team of people led by Tony Breich, who at the time was the president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching out in Palo Alto. And um, it, it piqued my interest. I, I picked up the book, read it. It was first introduced to the sort of improvement science. I'd never heard that sort of mm-hmm. coin, that term, coined like that. And um, started going to the Improvement Summit at the Carnegie Foundation starting in 2016. So that was my first exposure kicked off my improvement science learning. And, um, I would say it was, it was sort of very focused on tools at the time. And then some of the you know, sort of core principles that, that Carnegie talked about, but it was very much a lot of self-driven learning. And then, mm-hmm. and then I through some of that study came across Deming's name and, and that sort of opened up this whole other sort of learning journey, uh, that would, you know, that sort of, where I came to realize the importance of the way of thinking, the, the theory behind some of the tools. And that's sort of where I'm at now is really studying that theory and then then learning how to use the tools mm-hmm. yeah. with that that theory in the background.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, tools and theory. You know, Dr. Deming would use the word theory, um, talking about the importance of of theory, but at the same time you know, having some practical methods. I mean, before we talk more about the way of thinking, what were some of the tools that were being presented as um, being most applicable in an education setting?
0: You know, some of the first things I saw through Carnegie um, were were tools like the the fishbone diagram, Mm -hmm. and, you know, thinking about sort of mapping out the causal system of the problems that you're seeing within your system. they also were, are our big proponents of the driver diagram. And so, you know, and then they would say, this is the visualization of your theory for improvement and there's a theory of action. And so there was a lot, you know, of terminology to kind of track. But those two tools in particular are, are, are tools that I use often in the education setting at different stages of our improvement work. Um, I think the driver diagram I really like because it's, if it's on one page and I can say to people, don't overthink this. We're literally driving towards uh, a better system, driving towards solving this problem, or at least improving it. And here are some of the big levers we're pulling. And then we're breaking those down to the point where we're actually talking about modifications to how the actual work is getting done. So those those are two that stick out, especially in the early learning that I was doing. Um, I also learned about the five whys and, Mm -hmm. you know, as a part of root cause analysis, so that was a that was a helpful tool as well. Um,
1: yeah. Well, it, it seems like one big challenge in education is like uh, you you can measure outputs in different mm-hmm. ways. Um, yep. Test scores, I guess, are still the you know a way of doing that, or the predominant way of doing that. Um, a lot of the inputs maybe are out of the control of the school district. Um, you've got um, you know, influences of, uh, of poverty or disruptive home lives and, and other things that get in the way of kids being able to study or having just a healthy, calm environment. Um, you know, uh, with, a am mentioning all my family members today. I've loved it. My, my mother was a teacher, elementary school teacher, um, in inner city Detroit where the poverty mm. rates were, um, among the highest in the country. And yep. the challenges, um, you know, the, unfortunately, the, the stresses and the, the challenges that kids would bring into the classroom didn't put them in a position to um, to be taught to to, yeah. to focus. And so, is it a matter of trying to just you know do the best you can, given factors you have direct control over? Or I'm I'm, I'm just curious how you think through situations like that.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I remember um, a passage in that learning to improve book because Breich has a long history as a researcher before he went to Carnegie at the university of Chicago, uh, did a lot of research on trust in, in inner city Catholic schools. And then a lot of research in Chicago public schools because they have a, a consortium research consortium between the university of Chicago and Chicago public schools. And so he basically had this paragraph, it's on page 63. I remember it, you know, it's so, you know, the language he uses so vivid in my memory is basically uh, you know, sometimes working in schools where there are so many challenges, it's sort of like rolling a rock up a hill and it, it can sort of fall back on you at any time. So he says something to the effect of even schools that are doing pretty well under those conditions are always like on the edge of a cliff, ready to drop off a key staff member leaves or this, this, uh, program is no longer available or whatever can really you know shift things um in challenging ways and so you know i've always thought about my work even before i did the the continual improvement stuff as being on the other side of that rock and not letting it <laughs> roll down the hill and there's we have great people here that are that help with that so i'm not certainly not alone in in trying to hold that rock back but what we're looking at is Deliberate design from from start to finish. You know, be it the selection system at the front end, or the teacher training as we start to onboard, especially new staff, um, and then even you know intervention systems and other things that we're doing with students to catch them up. I mean, it's all you know very deliberately designed and thought through, and then then we try to improve those systems, you know, year over year uh, mm-hmm. as we see what works and what doesn't, and, and as things you know change over time. So there we have it,
1: PDSA cycles. Yeah, basically, yeah it, yeah, it is. Yeah. So um, this is taking a little bit out of sequence, but before we, we're going to take a deep dive into Deming, um, I want to connect dots to healthcare. And I want to hear a little bit about your learning from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, great organization, very um, influential. Um, in healthcare, they use similar language around improvement science. But one, one parallel that I think I'm seeing in, in, in healthcare, if you're measuring, let's say, Uh, mortality rates at given hospitals. Similar to education, some of the inputs of um, the health or um, of of patients, uh, poverty levels, access to care um, could mean that some of these measures are not apples to apples from one hospital uh, to another. If you're trying to measure or gauge quality, there's this phrase they use in, in healthcare, social determinants of health. And it seems like there, I don't know if that similar phrase is used, social determinants of education achievement.
0: Yeah, I've, I mean, I've heard the, the social determinants of health. I think there's an analogy there with education, although I haven't heard people sort of phrase it in that way. But I think, you know, talking about very similar sort of inputs and their impact on, on, on the outcomes. Um, so I think, I think the, the analogy works in a lot of ways between healthcare and, and education.
1: So then, back to IHI. You know, how, how did you end up, uh, you know, learning directly uh, from IHI? Considering that the H, of course, stands for healthcare.
0: <laughs> yeah, like a lot of these things, I you know did a lot of reading on improvement science and a lot of podcasts, a lot of articles, and just sort of paid attention to who was getting mentioned and organizations that were mentioned. And uh, in, in Tony Breich's "Learning to Improve" book, uh, Don Berwick played a pretty prominent role, especially in the early chapters and the introduction. And um, I think what had happened was Tony Breich gets his appointment at Carnegie and decides that improvement science is going to be the focus for the organization. And there's not a lot of places to go to learn the science of improvement. One of those places that he knew of was the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. So I think early on, he took staff members from Carnegie to IHI for various trainings and, and because of that mention I sort of did some research and saw that they had some really great training at IHI and the, the first one I actually signed up for I think was in 2018 I did uh, the their breakthrough series college where they trained people how to, how to run healthcare collaboratives but there was a number of education organizations there um, in addition to healthcare organizations and that was of interest to me because I uh, for a number of reasons, but one one was because the Gates Foundation was beginning to fund this networked improvement community type work, this collaborative type work in the education system. So I want to go learn how they were doing that. Um, and more recently, I've um, uh, enrolled in their improvement advisor program to sort of continue my own learning in improvement science.
1: Yeah, it's great to be able to you know connect the dots. I mean, improvement science is. Very transferable, Dr. Deming's approach and philosophy and methods are very transferable. Um, Process behavior charts, we're gonna come back and talk about this later on, Um, very transferable in in terms of helping build or support uh, a culture of improvement. But um, going back then, John, to your initial exposure to Deming, and you you wrote about this in the ebook you mentioned earlier. I think you said in the ebook you were a, a little turned off or I, I don't know the exact phrase. You said, you know it was a little hard to understand, and and some of the Deming reading can be a slog. Um, <laughs> but i'm I'm wondering you know how how you worked through that and 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 something changed in kind of your embrace of Dr. Deming's work, if you can talk about that too.
0: Yeah, I think it was the sort of exposure to IHI, you know, which was founding on on Deming's philosophy. Don Berwick was a, you know, a big proponent of Deming's work. I had- Student
1: of his, yeah.
0: Student of his, yeah. I had stumbled across Deming's name in a number of places, but prominently on the IHI website. And um, so I went to the Deming Institute website and there's a page that sort of explains his theory. You know, you obviously know it better than me, the system of profound knowledge. But when I first read about it, even the name, I was like, you know, yeah. who who calls their stuff <laughs> profound knowledge? What does that mean? Right. You know, it was sort of like uh, the, the name seemed sort of antiquated. And then when I read about it, it was interesting, but it was sort of just like incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. And then there was also this dissonance with a number of the ideas, you know, versus sort of the traditional management techniques that you sort of learn about um, in the United States. And, you know, so I didn't really... Do much with that uh that 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 discovery for about two years. And then something happened. I think I saw his name again in a book. And I went back to the website, the Demi Institute website in maybe spring, late winter of 2020. And and not that it just fully made sense or clicked, but for some reason, I was more open to the ideas. They made a little bit more sense. It lit a fire. And uh, you know, from about that time, just about two years ago. Been deep into this, this study of Deming's work. And then, mm-hmm. you know, not only his books, but others that, uh, you know, have written, written about his ideas. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and, and Dr. Deming in, in his books spoke about education very directly in a number of ways. Like I, I had read Deming and then I was in business school and I went back and reread what Dr. Deming had said about MBA programs. Okay. <laughs> I recognize that. Um, his criticisms um, of, of MBA programs and some of the things that are taught um, as, as you're kind of pointing to kind of typical management practices. Um, but even you know, the broader point first, um, You know we talk about measurement, whether it's health outcomes or education outcomes. Um, you know, Deming on one hand would talk about the importance of, of data but then he would also say the most important things are unknown and unmeasurable. So how, how do you process that as an educator?
0: Yeah, that's I mean, a, you know, a lot of those quotes and, you know, those ideas that show up in his writing were really tough. Those are some of the toughest things for me to to wrap my head around, um, you know, Things like like what you just said that the 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 most important things are the most important measures are unknown or unknowable, um, but but you can manage them, right? Because there's mm-hmm. this there's this quote where they only usually tell half the quote where it's like you know <laughs> something like you know if you can't measure it then you can't improve it. And Deming would say no 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 no, no yes. not, that's that's not the, true.
1: The, the full quote is something like many people say right <laughs> if you can't measure it you can't manage it the rest of the thought is something along the lines of, and that's complete hogwash. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They always forget that second, that second part.
0: Um, So, you know, even, even now, well, I I think one thing I had the sort of, as I went on this learning journey um, beginning in that spring, 2020, I started listening to the podcast on the Deming Institute website. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those are interviews and I would just call up or email the people That were being interviewed and many, many, many of them, almost all of them that I've reached out to responded right away and said, sure, let's talk. Um, One of those early people was Kelly Allen, who's heavily involved at the the institute. And he said, you know, if you're an educator, then you got to talk to David Langford. And I did, you know, I called him right then and there and he called me back and we ended up starting a, you know, a four or five month Exec, sort of executive coaching relationship where I'd say, "Okay, Deming says abolish grades, but that seems really radical." You know what what is what is he talking about here? Or even you know, sort of you know, very simple things like system, profound knowledge. What did he mean by profound knowledge? Because David had direct contact with him and participated in his seminars, and Deming was very interested in David's work as an educator you know, he, he, he worked with them for seven years. I, I then was able to sort of ask these same questions to, to David. And so that, that clarified a lot for me and we've maintained, he he's a coach in a continual improvement fellowship that I run internally at our organization. And so even on those sessions, as we've gone now over a year, with a second cohort, I'm learning every time. I do some of the coaching, but I do a lot of learning, yeah. you know, from from him and other other folks that have been generous with their with their time. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I think I found you know within that community of people who are students of Dr. Deming, and I w- I would consider myself as such um, through Dr. Deming's books and secondhand through others um, like Don Wheeler who worked with. That was two-way learning, you know. As it turns out, between Dr. Deming and, and Don Wheeler, um, the, the, it's such a small percentage of the population that even has interest in these topics. Mm-hmm. I mean, if somebody reaches out to me, like I think you know, you'd reached out to me and said, "Let's talk about process behavior charts." I'm like, "All right, yeah, when? How soon? Can we?" <laughs> <laughs> and then even better, you know, more broadly, some of the Deming philosophy. There's a parallel there. Where like if somebody reaches out. Thinking about lean and somebody, I don't really want to have a conversation about 5S, no offense to 5S as a tool or a method, but if somebody wants to talk about culture and management behaviors and things like that, that's, um, I think a more interesting, more impactful conversation, but like some of these other conversations, um, you know, I had a chance to interview Alfie Cohn mm. in episode 57, Mm-hmm. who was, I think, influenced heavily by Dr. Deming and is mentioned by Deming in, in his books. And, you know, uh, Alfie Cohn, you know, talks about, yeah, uh, eliminating measures, abolishing grading, um, talking about the downsides of competition. Like, that's another really radical thing that Deming even wrote about, too. Because, you know, I think there's this kind of very American ideal that um, competition makes everybody better. <laughs> like, well, in the classroom, though, there's this balance where we... we you, you need collaboration to help better learning. So I, I threw a bunch of thoughts at you there. I'm just—I'll ask the lazy question of what—what what are your reactions to any or all of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, um, you know, Alfie's book. Um, uh, oh man, it just escaped me. Um, Punished by rewards was one of those early books. So I, you know, as I kind of think about that chain of books probably the first one I read sort of that would be in the Deming camp or, or uh, a student of Deming was understanding variation uh-huh. uh, by Donald Wheeler and then the essential Deming uh-huh. and then measures actually measures of success was the next one. Cause I was really interested in the understanding variation stuff. Yeah. I saw that in the background.
1: I'm going to hold it up. Sorry. I,
0: um, and you know, uh, pretty soon after that was was Alfie's book, um, "Punished by Rewards," and mm-hmm. you know, I I think I have a memory of of hearing about Alfie Cohn's work um, probably more than a decade ago, probably close to two decades ago. But I really didn't deep dive deep into it. I knew people mm-hmm. had strong feelings on either side. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, you know, as I've gotten into the Deming stuff, as I've learned. A, or or tried to learn the why behind why he was saying what he was about grades or, you know, things like intrinsic motivation, you know, when I applied the theory to my own life, be it my own personal self or my own kids, I couldn't ever find like a crack in the armor. I mean, that's, I'm sort of a natural skeptic. Um, Mm -hmm. The first thing I'm going to, I don't believe that. Let me look that up, you know, that type of thing. And every time I did that with the Deming stuff, be it like trying to apply some of the things he was saying or think back and reflect on how I've experienced things professionally, I I had a really hard time ever finding sort of where, where there was a flaw and same thing with Alfie, you know, Alfie Cohn's ideas probably are radical to a lot of people, Uh Um, be it about competition or grades or whatever. But, you know, when I've listened to him speak, um, there's a recent Monk podcast debate he did on grading. And he just, you know, he's he's thought about this a lot. And one of the things he said at the end towards his closing statements on grading was, you know, we want students to experience success and failure as information, Uh not as reward and punishment.
1: Uh
0: And then I really stopped to think, you know, how has this played out in my own life? And what, what behaviors have I done because of grades or because Mm -hmm. of a a possible award Mm -hmm. um, that would come with grades or, or admittance into some type of, you know, honor society or whatever. And I thought, you know, that's not always the, that behavior that I've done doesn't always make a lot of sense from like a learning standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so even when we're talking about these ideas internally, like, you know, abolish grading and people say, Whoa, that's, that's crazy. And, you know, I'm still, I'm still thinking about that one. You know, I think about this example, for example, um, and I think it was in the Deming dimension by Henry Neve, where he tells the story of uh, an engineer that from Ford that went to a four day seminar and then, you know, saw point number three in the 14 points says, you know, Get rid of inspection, basically, and then mm-hmm. then he goes on Monday and fires all of the inspectors, and it didn't go very well because inspection right. well, was a part of the system.
1: <laughs> well, and and I think the point says cease reliance on inspection, cease reliance on, which yes. is a little bit yep. more nuanced. And yep. yeah, I mean the ideal, you know, for Lean or the Toyota production system is to build in quality mm-hmm. and not rely on inspection. But right. I'll tell you, a, a Toyota. Assembly plant in the year 2022, I haven't been to one in a couple of years. I'll assume it's still the same. Yeah. Has guess what? A final inspection line. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, wait a minute. I thought you said building quality. I'm like, well, <laughs> the system is still not robust and reliable enough yeah. to where they could. The cost of final inspection is lower than the cost of letting defects through to the customer, seems to be the determination.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when people, I think sometimes when we have these discussions internally about some of this philosophical stuff, people get a little nervous. And I always say, well, you know, we're not throwing this out, you know, we're thinking through, what does this mean? What would a replacement system be for this thing that we're thinking about? You know, all of that would be sort of very deliberately thought out before we considered any changes. Um, But it does, it it sparks really good conversation. And um, I think, that's where we're at is we're not, we're not necessarily throwing anything out that we're doing, but we're also uh-huh. really deeply thinking about why we do what we do. And I think that's part of the point of, of Deming's philosophy is to get you to really think deeply about why you do the things mm-hmm. that you do.
1: Yeah. And just one other point or connecting dots, um, uh, Norm Bodak, who um, was in a, in a way the co-founder of this podcast, it was his idea. Mm-hmm. He was my first guest. He was, Famous for bringing Japanese books to the U.S. and translating and publishing and, and doing a lot around kaizen and continuous improvement. And one thing Norman would uh, love getting on the soapbox about was um, the decline in creativity that yeah. occurs in school children. And I don't have the studies <laughs> or you know what he said anyway. Was you would see a steep decline in creativity starting in the first grade. And he said, well, I don't know, correlation, causation. He said that's that's when grading starts. <laughs> Our kids are learn or kids are taught or um, conditioned to not take risks and do things that might lead to a bad grade. I, that was that was a point he would make. Not necessarily. I, some of that was his own observation, perhaps.
0: Yeah, and you know, and I mentioned you know thinking about my own life. You know, I thought back to a time I, it, my senior year in high school. I I played football and um, was injured right as the school year started mm-hmm. and it was, you know, it, it was an injury that required surgery. And so, you know, had pain medicine and the start of the school year was, uh, was tougher because of the the injury. And I, you know, I was a good student, but math was always a, my probably toughest subject. And I was in calculus and it was really tough at that start because of the surgery and the, the pain medicine and the, you know, having to miss school for physical therapy and stuff like that. And I ended up, you know, dropping the class, because I was worried that I was going to get a B, you know, mm-hmm. or God, God forbid a C. And then, you know, I was sort of in the running for valedictorian or salutatorian. Mm-hmm. And so that was where the emphasis was rather than on, you know, the learning of calculus yeah, yeah. that, that, uh, you know, would be helpful, you know, in college, obviously. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that's a, I think that's an example. I mean, it's not a, a, a life ending decision, but it's a maybe a life changing decision when you mm-hmm. sort of, with the emphasis on the extrinsic reward yeah. versus versus the learning um, yeah. and i think if grades weren't a factor i wouldn't have dropped the class i just would have you know you know
1: gotten some extra help or something like that so that's that's one concrete example that, that that's a good that comes into play that's a good illustration and random question here you're talking about playing football and your last name is deuce you know it's d u e s for the mm-hmm. listener but deuce please tell me you were number 2 <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Twenty five. Twenty five. Well, it's a two and an upside down two. I don't know. Yeah, twenty two yeah. would have worked also. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so anyway, I, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, process behavior charts, of course, mm. um, and and the ebook um, gives a really good example and illustration of data points and you know the table of numbers color-coded numbers and then a process behavior chart to look at signal versus noise. Um, You know, assuming uh, hopefully a lot of listeners from other episodes or their own work have understanding of um, process behavior charts on some level. Can you talk about like where you found applications for this in education related data or metrics? Oh man,
0: everywhere, everywhere. (laughs) I mean, I mentioned Gates. I didn't get those early big grants for collaboratives, but I did get a a Gates grant for continuous improvement work. And at the same time, we got a grant from Dell to sort of work on some data infrastructure stuff. And one of the innovations for us, uh, because we're working with a group that does a lot of sort of data design stuff, because we don't have a lot of internal capacity. They're good at dashboards, but we introduced them to the process behavior chart. And so they're really interested now, what is this? Like, what what do these red lines mean? And so um, at the same time, we're introducing this to our network. We're we're building these pretty cool dashboards that these designer folks are interested in. Mm -hmm. I would say the first application because I was sort of learning about this stuff at the same time that the pandemic hit and schools went remote, those two things coincided. And so even before the process behavior chart, Became useful. This idea of operational definitions was very useful because we discovered very quickly, even though we're pretty systematic, we have two middle schools geographically five miles apart and they do everything very similarly, but they had very different definitions of what it meant to be engaged in a remote environment for a student. Mm -hmm. And so the very first thing that we did during the school closure was come up with a definition of remote learning engagement. And then because we're pretty data driven, our folks at the school level were already collecting the data and putting it into tables. And then they were also color coding it, red, yellow, and green. Right. And then, you know, I was getting exposed and a couple other people were getting exposed to this understanding variation stuff from Wheeler and the process behavior chart from your book. And, you know, it, you know, they, they they would do something like color code, sixty two and I remember this sixty two percent engagement was red, but sixty seven percent was yellow and I was like well what's, what's the difference between sixty two and sixty seven I know one's bigger than the other, but you know in reality, like what's the difference? And so we took it out of the tables for them and started putting it in a process behavior chart and sort of explaining what the ups and downs mean and what to look for to determine if there was significance between mm-hmm. 62 and 67%, because there's a chance there could be significance. Um, there wasn't. Um, but it allowed us, especially in a stressful time, new learning systems, uh, remote learning, uh, a lot of trying to figure out what the pandemic meant for education. The, the process behavior charge literally allowed us to do the subtitle of your book, You know, mm-hmm. React Less, mm-hmm. You know, I forget I forget all of it, but the reacting less part stands out.
1: Yeah. Well, re, re, yeah, it sounds like you're doing that. React less, lead better, improve more.
0: That's right. Yeah. Instead of like overreacting, oh, our, you know, remote learning engagement in eighth grade math went down to, you know, 57% this day. You know, instead of reacting to individual data points, we are looking at the system evolve over time, what it was capable of. And then, then once we sort of had some of that data baseline, then we could start talking about as a group, how do we improve that? And there, you know, we're, we, I think we're, you know, we've always been a pretty um, people focused sort of organization, but there was, you know, the proclivity for, you know, what's wrong with that guy's class? You know, why Mm -hmm. is this engagement so low versus what's the system that's producing that engagement and how can, me and the math teacher and, 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 you know, a team of people work on that system to improve it over time. You know, it changes the conversation, allows people to see what's happening in their system, what the system is capable of, those types of things.
1: Yeah. And so there's those points of distinguishing signal from noise that Don Wheeler um, teaches so well. And I've learned from him on that. And then there's also that lesson, um, the trouble with arbitrary targets, Mm. Why is if sixty five percent was the threshold <laughs> between red and yellow? Um, what what meaningful difference um, does that make um, is is a really important point or I think you even said in the ebook, let's say if the threshold for green was eighty. how often do we see in different organizations where people look at a metric that's green and they say, well, it's green, there's nothing to look out here <laughs> right. look at and like, well, but we should still be working toward Closer to a hundred percent engagement, right? So th- right. That, that that ends up being a cap on performance.
0: Yeah, lie. in the eighty percent example, that means twenty percent. You know, one out of five kids aren't engaged on that particular day. That's right. not good. That's not good.
1: Wow. <laughs> That's not a worthy goal. Now, that might be typical in the system as currently designed. Yes. back to the yep. point of looking at signal versus noise, and you know, this is other other comparison that. Um, is usually not the first thing taught about process behavior charts, but where you can look at comparisons, a snapshot in time, Mm -hmm. if you were looking across, if you were in a district that had, let's say, 20 schools, or you could do this looking at hospitals within a region of uh, the VA health system and say, okay, well, here are the engagement rates at all these different schools. You randomize the order of the schools. You put them in alphabetical order. Mm-hmm. Wheeler teaches how you do this. And then you use the same math and the same concept to look and see if any of those schools are a statistical outlier from each other yes. or a signal back to okay. your point of, well, that school's at 62% and that school's at 67%. Are we going to fire the leader of the 62% school? That's probably an overreaction.
0: Right. If right. they're both exactly. in the
1: range of the inc- the, the control chart, the, the process behavior chart.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, such a good point about, you know, comparing the, the various organizations and, you know, even the, you know, when the pandemic hit, um, even informally, school leaders were talking about remote learning engagement. But, you know, what I found pretty quickly is that, that they didn't even have that concept defined in the same way. So they weren't even talking about the same thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, one school's 80% engagement, another school's 50% engagement. Like the comparison between the two were essentially meaningless because the definitions were different. You know, like I said, even at our own middle schools, initially they had two different definitions. One had a pretty rigorous definition of what it meant to be engaged, and one had a less rigorous definition. And you could see, if you didn't dig into that, the less rigorous definition is going to result in higher engagement and perhaps praise to that yeah. to, the, right. to those folks. When in reality, something better is probably going on at this other place that has this more rigorous definition of what it meant for a student to be engaged. Um, and I think
1: things like that are happening all the time in education and you know other sectors as well. Well, and, and I think this performance data I've always made uh, for a long time, I've made the same point that that data should be used for learning and improvement as opposed right. to using it for punishment, as you said earlier about um, grades or educational um measures. So um, I'm going to touch on a couple of things, maybe real quick, a little bit more uh, rapid fire, things that I thought were really interesting from uh, your ebook. Or, you know, sure. so there's a lot that was, in, it was all interesting. But when you talk about the appreciation for systems thinking, you talked about a study that looked at the impact on individual professional development spending. Mm. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that, at least a summary?
0: Yeah, I think that that um, that research was really interesting, and it, basically the idea was they they had a uh, one researcher had um, sort of earlier on come up with a rigorous definition of what it meant to do professional development for educators, and then looked at one when that sort of type of professional development was implemented, what type of effectiveness that it had, and basically what they found was none. <laughs> and yeah. my basic assessment was you know, look, you're training people maybe in a worthwhile technique, but that thing may have no sort of impact on organizational improvement. That That's a completely different set of sort of tools and techniques that you need. And because those two things were disconnected, you're doing one thing and it wasn't showing up in this other camp because you weren't doing the right thing. So that really stood out to me that, that it sort of I think it, the thing the comparison I used was if you train a surgeon in a specific technique, is that going to show out show up in various outcome data for a hospital as an organization probably probably not it doesn't mean the training itself isn't worthwhile sure, but if you're expecting it to lead to those outcome results at the organization level, probably not going to happen.
1: Yeah, I think there's a clear parallel whether it's in healthcare or manufacturing or what have you uh, the number of whatever color belts that you're training and certified in the context of Six Sigma or Lean Six Sigma. I've seen that in different organizations where, yeah, all of that individual professional development, while not bad, doesn't change some of the core pieces of the system that would, for example, prevent them from using what they learned in that good, valid professional (laughs) development activity. Right. Um, now, another thing that I, I think was really interesting, Peter Scholtz, who mm-hmm. uh, is uh, uh, amazing. Uh, he passed away, I think, over a decade ago. Unfortunately, he was at University of Wisconsin and is well-known in quality improvement circles. He pointed out, as you quoted it from the Leader's Handbook, you know, there's this whole expression. I've heard it come from the training within industry methodology. It probably mm-hmm. predates that. If the student, so Schultz said, the adage "if a student hasn't learned, the teacher hasn't taught" is not true or useful. Instead, instead, a much more useful characterization is: if the learner hasn't learned, the system is not yet adequate. Yeah. So he and maybe he's saying, well, don't blame "quote unquote" the teacher. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what what are some other reactions um, to to that quote?
0: Yeah. I think pretty similar to yours. I mean, I think 10 years ago, you know, I saw some version of, you know, if the student hasn't learned, the teacher hasn't taught and thought, Oh yeah. Because I think if you sort of fall in evolution, first it was all the students fault (laughs) and then it was the teacher's fault. And in reality, there's this whole system of things that are going into all of those learning processes and, you know, no one individual is, is able to sort of overcome the system, no matter how good they are, you know, mm-hmm. um, is that sort of th- that similar thinking where you can, you know, have a really great star football player to go back to that and you put them on in a bad system. Yeah. They almost never overcome that, you know, right, right. versus if you put, you know, even an average player, sometimes in a really great system, they perform, sort of outperform how they have before. And it's the same same type of thinking that this blaming any individual is not helpful, mm-hmm. which is sort of what a lot of the education accountability systems have done, either blaming individual schools or blaming individual teachers when it comes to you know, test score data or growth data or whatever, um, when really there's this, this system that we have to work on, that, that's really where the area of focus should be.
1: Um the, in, in your ebook, you, you get into um, theory of knowledge and you know, I think those, those questions that you pointed out in the ebook, why do we do the things we do? You know, some of these things are so ingrained that we don't question them? And that touches on all sorts of things we've talked about today. Why do we color code data? <laughs> in these tables of numbers, we 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 why do why do we assign numerical or letter grades? Some of these things fall in the category of well, that's the way we've always done it. So those conversations, as you, as you said, um, hopefully lead to progress, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a sort of I think all kinds of things that fall in that bucket, and I think I can't remember if I said it in the ebook or the book that I'm writing, you know basically when you start to sort of think about that list, it can be a little bit bit daunting and you almost Mm -hmm. want to apologize to people for some of the stuff. Um, And then, you know, that's where, you know, some of the Deming stuff becomes really helpful because he, you know, he, he says things like, I make no apologies for learning, you know, not that you're a jerk about it, but, you know, he's on this continual path to improvement as well. And so, you know, if, if the old way was you did it the best you knew how, and then you learned a new way, there's, there's really no apology to make for that. Um, but you, but but you make the change and you, and you,
1: and you get on that path to improvement. Well, and I've, I've heard, you know, a story told by Don Wheeler that, that illustrates Deming's continual learning, um, that there's a lot that Don Wheeler learned from Dr. Deming. And there's a lot that, both came down from Walter Schuhart, the creator mm-hmm. of these different forms of control chart. And Don Wheeler says he's the one who really helped Dr. Deming understand the process behavior chart, the quote unquote XMR chart mm-hmm. was so applicable um, to the things Dr. Deming um, you know, wrote about and taught and talked about whether it's the red bead game or real world uh, performance measures. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think, that's
0: one place I haven't dug into yet is Shuhart's original work. I have one of his original books, but I haven't dug up in there yet. I also have C.I. Lewis's The Mind in the World Order on, on, my, uh, on my nightstand, um, I'm 50 pages in. And,
1: you know, some of that stuff is really hard to, to unpack, but I'm, I'm trying <laughs> So to think back to President um, Kennedy, we read these things not because they're easy, but because they're important or because <laughs> right. they're hard or you know, <laughs> paraphrasing. But. Yeah. Um, so as we wrap up, again, our, our guest today has been um, John Deuce. Um, tell us a little bit more about the book and the aim and the progress there.
0: Yeah. So, you know, the sort of, the you know, I read a bunch of books when I began this journey. Um, I write a monthly Blog post on our website and um, post it to LinkedIn and uh-huh. and and really do that to sort of process what I've learned and then put it out there to see what the feedback is and then took some of those blog posts and put it into this ebook that we've talked about um, and then kind of at the same time once I felt like I had some grasp of the of the Deming theory I started writing an actual book um, sort of the working title is. Rethinking Improvement, My Deming Journey to Transformation. Um, so there's a first draft done. I'm working as I'm a first-time author, so I'm working to find a, a publisher right now. And um, I'm hoping you know, to, to publish it by you know fall of 2022 or so. But a bit, really, it unpacks how I've gone about learning this okay. and then sort of takes the theory and applies it to some of the work I do here at United Schools Network to to bring it alive for people, maybe, maybe make it a little easier to understand than some of the manufacturing examples or whatever that don't maybe translate as well.
1: Um, you know,
0: in doing so helping us get better as an organization, me learn. So that's really sort of the aim of, of, of writing the book.
1: Writing a book is a great way to better your own understanding of a topic. (laughs) I felt like that coming into the book measures of success. Yeah, certainly brought my um, learning and there's there's the learning and then there's the ability to articulate it clearly and going through those cycles. Yep. PDSA yep. cycles of writing. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really what's happened. It,
0: it sharpens your own sort of knowledge of these things, which are not easy to understand. And so I think if something like you had your 10 key lessons for data analysis and I really had to think about how do I translate that into something that works for education, yeah. and you know how many data points do I need in the baseline, and under what conditions, and things like that. So, it really, made me sharpen up the language I was using and my references to other people's work. And yeah. um, it, you know, it's become a tool that people here can use because it's gone through that sort of iteration process.
1: Well, that's great. So I'll look forward to seeing that book. That'll be uh, the book's publication, will be a great excuse for us to do another episode together. How's that? Yeah,
0: I I would welcome that. I would certainly appreciate it. All
1: right. Well, thanks. So, again, our guest today has been uh, John Deuce from the United Schools Network, uh, Columbus, Ohio area. I'll put links in the show notes uh, for uh, the ebook, the blog. John on LinkedIn, please follow him or connect and check out um, the great stuff he's sharing. So John, thank you. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Yeah, Mark, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily,
0: visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.